Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Our guest today, Jennifer Stein, is an artist, entrepreneur, activist, and award-winning documentary filmmaker. She has won four EBE awards at Open Minds UFO Congress Film Festivals, two for Disclosure Dialogues in 2012, and two for Travis, The True Story of Travis Walton in 2015. The documentary film, Travis, has won 28 mainstream film festival awards. Jennifer has a Bachelor of Science from the University of Arizona. She is coordinating member of Noetic Sciences Shift in Action for Southeastern Pennsylvania, the founder of Mainline MUFON, a free monthly educational series for the Mutual UFO Network and has sat on numerous boards of nonprofit organizations and managed an event coordination business before dedicating herself full-time to documentary filmmaking. So let's welcome Jennifer to the show and have her introduce us to Travis Walton. Thanks for being here, Jen. And Travis Walton is such an amazing story. So I'm going to give it to you to let you tell the story. Well, it's an honor to be here, Barb. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, certainly, great. certainly now in the news, more and more people who were either in, in uh, uninterested or just uninformed about the UFO subject are now getting it in the mainstream media because the mainstream media is finally covering the, the subject, the UFO phenomenon in general. Mm-hmm. With the go fast videos and, you know, the story of the Nimitz and the Roosevelt, both aircraft carriers that encountered UFO craft and scrambled jets and were engaged with them. Um, these are very significant stories. But of course, the UFO topic historically has been in the news really since 1947. I mean, the, week, the weekend is, of July 4th. It, yeah. What has brought it up? Now, why are people so much more? Is it because of cell phone videos? Well, it's it's a whole combination of things. Um, What has changed is the major media is taking it seriously. And that happened Mm -hmm. because of, I'll say, one main person named Luis Elizondo, who stepped out of the Pentagon. He was working in a a basically considered to be a a secret program called the um, Aerial Phenomenon uh, threat identification program was the head of it. It was often referred to as ATIP, which is the acronym for the title of the program he was responsible for. But he he lost funding for his program, but yet uh, it, it ran from about 2007 to 2012. And then from 2012 to like 2016, 17, he was still getting reports, but he wasn't being mm-hmm. paid to research them. And the reports were just piling him up year after year after year yeah. on his desk. And he finally stepped out of the Pentagon with permission from his higher ups within the Pentagon mm-hmm. to make this subject public. 
And in doing so, he connected with Senator Harry Reid and he connected with writers from The New York Times, Ralph Blumenthal, Leslie Keene, and a woman named Helene Cooper. And they wrote a very significant story, which made the front page of The New York Times and The Washington Post and, you know, papers all around the world. So that's what opened the door. Okay, Um, because when somebody from the Pentagon steps forward with his full credentials and says, look, this is what I've been doing, people pay attention. So there was a shift within the power structure that was keeping it secret that decided we really need to let people know. Now, whether this is part of a planned government disclosure or a drip, drip, drip type of disclosure, it's certainly mainstream disclosure, which we had not yet had prior to so somebody uh, decided to we got to bring this out here we right. can't be sitting on this anymore exactly yeah, government insiders whom will never know their names of mm-hmm. <laughs> brought some of this information forward now there have been other significant drips that came forward as well there was something referred to as the wilson document admiral wilson was in charge of the entire you know uh U.S. military, and he was denied access to UFO materials, told he didn't have top level clearance for it. And he said, what the heck? I am the head of (laughs) the armed forces and I'm not allowed to know what's going on here. And I want to know what is top level um, clearance then if he doesn't have it? Exactly. Who does have it? It's a very good question, Barb. Yeah. And that's the type of questions that are coming forward now. Mm-hmm. But And so the, the Travis Walton story is just one of several very significant UFO in, encounters that came to to light. I mean, Travis's event happened in 1975. He was uh, 19. I'm sorry. He was 20 uh, years old at the time. Mm-hmm. or 21 years old. He was a logger in the Sitgraves National Forest, and he was working with six other loggers. So there were seven men in the forest who all encountered this craft when their story happened. And unfortunately, this event was was very significant. Travis actually ended up being probably uh, killed, if not just totally knocked unconscious. Many people think he was probably killed by a beam that came out of this craft. His friends fled in horror that this could be them next. They were all in a truck. Mm-hmm. He had jumped out of the truck and run up right under a UFO that was hovering in the in the canopy of the forest that they encountered as they were leaving the forest at the end of the day. So his friends drive away, right? Thinking they're going to be next. This craft is going to follow them and but hit them. But before they beam. drive away, I have to ask this question yeah. because I, I've heard this sense that he came out and said he now thinks it's, and I could be dead wrong in this and yeah. feel free to tell me yeah. um, that it was static electricity where before it was a, like almost like a shot of electric. Well, no one, no one really knows exactly what it was, but it was a very powerful beam. Right. It it took them down. It did have electrical components to it to some degree. Mm -hmm. Some of the guys in the truck had been in the military. One actually had been an electrical engineer and worked in a large electrical transforming uh, place. And he said when that beam hit him, it sounded like some of the uh, electrical charges and and that they would hear when they turned on major generators and stuff like that. That when wow. they tripped things on and the voltage that you could hear. Yeah. 
that was did it they was such, smell anything or did it, that no, ever come up? No, nope, they didn't smell anything, okay. uh, but they felt this electric charge buildup and they felt the thud when it hit him through their mm-hmm. bodies, through the truck, through the seat of the car. The driver yeah. of the truck, um, the, the crew boss named uh, Mike Rogers said he felt it through the steering wheel. Wow. So the beam that hit Travis was so powerful. It threw him about 15, 20 feet up in the air backwards. He landed mm-hmm. without any attempt to break his fall. And he he didn't move after he landed. And right. his friends were about 100 feet away watching this going, oh, my gosh, he's he's dead. Something's right. You know, we're next. We, you know, right. we, I they were run. trying to figure out what was, what was <laughs> going on. They, they fled in their life, you know, yeah. for their lives. But then the crew boss said to himself and to his crew after they got to the top of the crest of the hill and they mm-hmm. saw the craft fly away. They were watching it in, 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 you know, as they got above it, they were looking back at it when they saw right. it fly away, they got out of the truck and had an argument. And basically Mike said, look, Travis is my best friend. I'm responsible for him. We're 45 minutes from civilization up here in the middle of the Sitgraves National Forest. I'm mm-hmm. going back to get him and I'm going to get him medical help because otherwise we're we're responsible as if as if a tree would fall on, on him or something. Nobody's going to believe us that we've seen yeah. this UFO. We're 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 done for <laughs> if we don't go back and get him. It's just going to get worse. And mm-hmm. all of these boys knew that. So they were terrified and traumatized. And this this event ruined their lives. I mean, mm-hmm. when, what that's what my documentary really covers. It, it gives you a forty. And we should second. say here about your documentary. I'm, uh, we're doing it a little bit. That's all right. Copy, but it'll work. Um, your documentary is on Discovery Plus right now. Yes, yes, and it's, it's called, on Amazon Prime. It's on Discovery. Yeah. It's I think it's on Hulu and Crackle and a lot of different networks. And it's actually out with multiple languages too. Mm. So I saw um, it on Discovery. Yeah. Yep. It's actually on some Japanese. It's a, it's a great film. Now. Great documentary. Well, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much. It's It has done really well. As you said in your intro, it won uh, 28 mainstream film festival right. awards. Which That's quite me, a lot. Which helped me get a distributor and helped me get it out, you know, uh, to uh, networks now. I mean, everything just goes to streaming these days, even mainstream yeah. Hollywood films. But of mm-hmm. course, in 2015, when I was doing this, it wasn't necessarily the case. So I was looking for a bigger distributor and maybe to get it in art houses. That didn't specifically happen, but the film is being very well received. It's and, a great uh, film. I, I recommend it to everybody to watch it. It's a great film. Well, I, I tried to go back and <clears throat> interview the key people who were involved in it, not only the loggers who were still living, but the police mm-hmm. officers who were involved and the man who did the polygraph examinations. Now, now we've lost one of the major police officers and the, the polygraph examiner has now passed away. So I'm very glad that I you went got back film. and found them yeah. and got them to really talk about this event and their um, experience with the crew. And, and But first, back to the story, yeah. first they, the police accused the other loggers of murdering him because yes, his did. body was not there. When Correct. they went back, he was not there. Correct. This is, this is the most significant uh, you know, part of the Travis Walton story, the crew mm-hmm. boss returned, as I was mentioning, to find Travis and to bring him to to get medical help. And all of the guys decided they were jumping back in the truck with them. Nobody wanted to stay in the forest alone. They all stuck together. <laughs> they went back to the site where the craft had yeah. been. And there was no Travis where he had landed. He was not there. And there were no footprints of him mm-hmm. going anywhere else. 
And um, then they went and got help after they couldn't find them. And for about 45 minutes, they returned with the police. The police looked for about an hour and a half, couldn't find him. Some of the police went home. One police officer stayed there all night thinking maybe this craft would come back. Now, the police had all seen seen craft similar to this. And when I interviewed them, most of them told me their stories, but I had to turn my camera off. They wouldn't let me film them saying right. this, but right. that's why they, they actually believed the boys. But in order to keep themselves doing due diligence as police officers, mm-hmm. they asked the boys to take lie detection tests because Travis was missing for five days. Yeah. And there was a crew of people of about a hundred people a day for five days who were out there looking for him. There were people on horseback. There were volunteers. There were part of the Navajo search and rescue group that were out there. They had helicopters looking for him. They had, you know, dogs that were trained with the scent of Travis's clothing, trying to find him. Nothing turned up. Except electromagnetic energy, didn't they? Some some people were out there with Geiger counters and they picked Mm -hmm. up some uh, uh, remnant of some highly uh, radioactive material that may right. have affected the helmets and the truck of the crew because uh, wow. they were they were doing ground readings and they were getting some some unusual readings but not something really significant but then when they when they brought it over to Mike Rogers truck he drove you know he he was there on the search team he came mm-hmm. back up the next day and all the helmets of the guys were still in the back of the truck and so were the gas cans and the truck itself and their right. helmets. All of those things set off this meter. They went wow. really, really high. Yeah. And we never knew who those meter readers were. They were government representatives who didn't identify themselves to the police. And then they got back in their vehicles and drove away once they got the readings. So the government people came in and just didn't talk much and gathered Correct. information Correct. and left. There were yeah. all sorts of people there yeah. following this story, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in, during the five days of the ensuing search that took place. Yeah. Um, and not everybody identified themselves, lots of UFO groups, and then lots of freaks and kooks and people just right. looking for, right. the, you know, to make fun of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, some legitimate researchers, there were multiple UFO teams and they, d- different groups at the time, there was APRO and another group called Ground Saucer Research. And they were sort of competing for information on the story right. and sometimes mm-hmm. giving out contradictory information, which now has since been dug up in archives and people are using this as a way to debunk the story saying, oh, this wasn't true because ground saucer research said this and APRO mm. said this, but no, Under I mean, that kind of situation, all kinds of information comes out. Most you of it's got it. Just yeah. like if there's a traffic accident, you right. have 10 people right. watching it. You'll have 10 different people saying, no, the blue car was first. No, the right. yellow car right. ran the stoplight. And, you yeah. Know. And then it turns out there was no yellow car. Right. Right. <laughs> I know. Right. 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 Yeah. Everything you can imagine in the complexity of human emotions comes to the surface in a situation like this. And of course, Travis's family members, his older brothers who Mm -hmm. knew all the loggers, they began to be suspicious that something had happened because these loggers didn't necessarily all know each other very well. Some of them, Mm -hmm. the youngest one was brand new. He'd only been on the crew like two or three days. Um, Some of the 
the loggers actually didn't like each other. Uh, some of them had minor police records for maybe taking, you know, stealing a car when they were underaged or, mm-hmm. you know, um, fight in a bar, yeah, yeah, like, that kind various of various thing. things. I mean, yeah. Uh, but they were also all Mormon kids. So these were mm-hmm. all, you know, from Mormon families. So they had sort of a, a strict, you know, moral code to their community. Right. And it made it difficult, certainly for these boys, even more difficult than it would have been in normal circumstances, I think. Mm-hmm. So it was a really a complicated story and still yeah. is to this day. Right. But it During is also- those five days, though, um, I mean, everybody kept looking, everybody kept researching and investigating. And then the polygraph, I mean, they they all did the polygraph a few times, right? Well, on they they all the crew members that uh, were there took a polygraph that particular Sunday, which was the fifth day Travis was missing. And uh, when they all passed their polygraph test, which they did. One one person was inconclusive. That was Alan Dallas because he had a bit of a police record and he was convinced they were just using this as a way to entrap him. And was he the new throw one? Or, no. no, he had been working on the crew for a while, but he mm-hmm. and Travis didn't necessarily like each other very well. And when yeah. his test was inconclusive, that got thrown up as, oh, see, this is proof. Right, But right. you don't have yeah. five, you don't have five people passing a polygraph and having it be a mass hallucination of yeah. some sort, which <laughs> is they what they were accused of having. Same thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Wow. Yeah. And the polygraph guy, didn't he come out and say this can't happen? Correct. He said the the chances of five people lying on a polygraph is over a million to one that they're, you know, this is ridiculous. They're, they're telling the truth. They didn't murder Travis. They did see a UFO. And um, then finally the guy who had not passed his polygraph finally then took a second one a few months later and passed it. Mm Mm-hmm. When, when everybody knew everything about him, right. he might as well come clean. That's right. And Travis yeah. also took multiple polygraphs mm-hmm. now and has passed them all. Talk about how he came back to the world and what he remembers. Well, um, it, it's very interesting. He was returned uh, five days later, but he didn't know it was five days later. He has mm-hmm. very little conscious memory of what happened while he was on board this craft. Um, in fact, uh, if people are interested, I can direct them to uh, Travis Walton, the movie.com website. Um, if they go there, there's a video page and further, you know, if you scroll down through there, there's actually an onboard the craft reenactment that we did for oh, the wow. documentary. And they can just watch this little clip. There. Yeah. And it tells exactly what happened to him while he was on board the craft and while he was awake on board the craft because he wasn't awake the whole time. That's why we suspect he was probably killed and these beings brought him back to life. But the, mm-hmm. the major part of Travis's experience is that he encountered two different species of beings that were not human. Mm-hmm. One looked very much like a human being, but he suspects they were maybe uh, ancestors or progenitors of the human race because they look so much like us, but they didn't actually directly communicate with them. And then the other ones were the short little grays that many people who have had abduction experiences talk about. 
And they call them grays because of the color of their skin. Their skin, skin right? and, the and they're fact, short. <laughs> and they're short. They don't seem to have a lot of hair. They have very large eyes, very small nose, and very, very small mm-hmm. mouth features. Uh, almost no ear to speak of what we would think of as, a, as an ear. Right. And they're very frail. Travis actually hit them and touched them because he was frightened by them. When he woke up, he saw them staring at him. And he jumped off off of, off of a table and started to try to use some medical tools to defend himself and scream and yell at these little gray aliens. And mm-hmm. they were unable to contain him or to control him. And he felt that they were trying to do that. They were trying to climb inside his mind and wow. control his central nervous system. And he was so angry and so agitated and maybe because he'd been electrocuted, maybe, (laughs) maybe his central nervous system wasn't working the way they needed Mm -hmm. it to for them to control him. As many people say, they are in like a zombie state and they are not able to, even if they see what's going on to them, they can't do anything about it because they're paralyzed when they're in an abduction situation. So this was not Travis's story, Mm -hmm. you know, per se, it wasn't a typical abduction experience, but the Greys decided they couldn't work with him. They left and got another species to come into this craft and help him. And that person looked human. Travis thought he was being rescued by someone from NASA. He thought it was an astronaut <laughs> coming to, yeah. to help him. Is there any chance that the grays shape-shifted or something? Good question. You know, we don't it, know. They, of course, yeah. Yeah, from, from, from what we really know about these potentials, Barb, we don't really know. I mean, yeah. maybe shape-shifting yeah. is quite possible. Many people speak about it, not so much with the grays. Typically, experiencers mm-hmm. talk about shape shifting with other beings more like reptilians that can right, or seem animals, to yeah. become human or yeah. then shape shift into a snake or a lizard features, wolf, but a they're still of, kind yeah. of human, but they also have these other features. Yes, there have even yeah. been descriptions of people with dog faces. What I find mm-hmm. fascinating is when you go to Egypt and you go into Egyptian hieroglyphs, or you see Egyptian sculptures on the walls, you see beings that are human with dog faces and lizard faces and bird faces and things that like this. So and you're wondering, okay, what were, what are they depicting? What are they right. talking about? Is you this- also studied the archeological sites. Yes, yeah. I have. I'm bringing yes. the little that in. <laughs> yep. Yep. You, yeah. You, once you open Pandora's box, right, which you kind of have to do when you're a UFO experiencer, then nothing's off the table where it might have been before. Suddenly, it's like the veil is lifted and you have an interest in a lot of things. At least I did. So, yes, I've traveled with like uh, Robert Schock to Gobekli Tepe, which is supposedly 12,000 you know, BC when it was probably covered over, but we don't know exactly when it was built. I've been to Egypt. I've been to Peru, Easter Island, Pumapuka in Bolivia, a lot of different places. And, and I'm And you're seeing a consistency in those places? I'm seeing a consistency of things that do not add up to being (laughs) built at the period of time when they say they were built with the technology that we supposedly had Mm -hmm. at those times. So there is what we call O-parts or out-of-place objects all over the place, you know, from huge, large, polished stone blocks lying around at the top of a hill 
in, mm-hmm. in, in, in Puma Puka and in Oliente Tambo and the Sacred Valley of Peru, which shouldn't be there. You know, there are perfectly shaped objects in Egypt that shouldn't be there. There are right. batteries, the Baghdad battery that exists. That I, I've read exist. about the batteries and I, my mind just blew up on that. You know, it's yes. like, wait a minute, we're back to our future. And the and very I'm- famous Aunt- Antikarithian object, which is like a, a, a clock or a computer or a Swiss watch that was dug up off the wow. coast of Spain out of a shipwreck, and it shouldn't exist. The, the, yeah. the complexity of it shouldn't be there. And now, with uh, you know, mic- uh, different types of microscopes that we can really look at with it, you know, in a more intricate way, we mm-hmm. can understand the complexity of it, which we couldn't when it was found in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. Do we recognize the complexity or is it beyond us now even? Um, Well, we can appreciate the complexity of it and we can understand what it was predicting. And it was something Mm -hmm. that was a star map and it predicted movements of heavenly bodies. We can know that from understanding the cogs in the wheel and and how they related to each other. We know that it was an astronomical clock of some sort and was most likely used for navigation on the seas. But it was a very complex, sophisticated yeah. piece of equipment. So they lost me on the uh, pyramids. There's, they have no explanation yes. that works for me. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> that you know, there's no way they could be built, not that's by right. anything we have now, anything we had then. You that's know, right. and I'm maybe there's something, but now, but you know, certainly not then. Yeah. 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 I it's, know. Amazing. It is really amazing. When Mm -hmm. I started to go to UFO conferences, I began to realize, I mean, I I would like literally go back to my hotel room at night and like hold my head and go, oh my goodness. Oh, you know, we never (laughs) learned this in high school. I never learned this in college. (laughs) And then there's a belief that it's all connected, that, that near death is part of the UFO experience. That, that it's all energy. Keen said it's all energy. And that's really all it is. And it's a manipulation of energy. And then we get into the trans, you know, the interdimensional, you know, is it interdimensional, intradimensional? You know, um, it, it, it does. Once you open that door, as you say, you walk into a place that just blows up your reality. You know, you, you just almost have nothing to hang on to. Well, I will say, Barb, I think it takes a very brave person to start to look under the rock or open Pandora's box. Um, Many people get a glimpse of it and they slam the box shut because it doesn't fit with their known reality. And they just know inside they don't have... I I wouldn't call it integrity, but they don't have the foundation to go there. Maybe it's foundation. I think it comes down to courage and Mm. spiritual confidence that they're going to be okay and they can study and look at these things and begin to understand them and digest them. Because once they begin to digest them, other people will be able to as well, and they will become the leaders for people to follow. And Mm -hmm. I must say that the the crew of this, this logging crew, all of these guys 
have had to do this in their lives and it's changed their lives, especially Travis. You know what, before we go back to Travis, let's take a break here and then we'll come back to Travis, talk about taking a little trip around the world. So we'll be right back and we'll talk more about Travis's experience and what happened, what happened with this crew. We'll be right back. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. One thing's for certain, life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, this is Barb Crowley, Metaphysics Through the Veil, and we're back with Jen Stein. We have been talking about Travis Walton as, an, as a really unusual abduction to, into a UFO, and she has done a beautiful documentary film on it and has been talking about how she has um, interviewed, gotten hold of the original people and interviewed them and gotten them on film. And I'm going to bring Jen back in to tell us some more about this, about Travis. Thanks so much, Barb. It's so it's so great to be here. So do we want to talk about uh, why I actually made the film? Uh, um, yeah. Where did we leave Travis off where he's come back? Oh, yeah. Let's talk about before we get in. Will you tell me the way it should go? Because I also want to talk about the skeptic and how he got just hounded. Yes, he did. That part, too, where, you know, he just and all of them, I give them credit, never changed their story. No. And the reality was blown up and they had to go with what they knew happened. Right. So let's go back to Travis being returned and what actually happened to Travis, because I think that's an important part of the story for everyone to really grasp and understand. So Travis. And how he got returned. And how he got returned. That's right. (laughs) So Travis is, of course, hit by this beam, and that's the last thing he remembers, right? And he's lying in the middle of the Sitgraves National Forest where the logging crew was working, which is a 45-minute switchback drive on a dirt road to the nearest town, which is called Heber. So mm-hmm. when they when the crew went back to pick him up and he, they couldn't find him, you know, they wanted to get him medical help and they knew they needed to quickly because even for them to get to the town of Heber and then drive to a hospital, I mean, I think Payson was the closest hospital and that was an hour and a half away, you know. So they were they were quite concerned. So they can't find Travis. They of course report him missing. Five days later, Travis gets returned. And Mm -hmm. he wakes up on the side of a road. He doesn't know exactly where he is, but half of his body is laying in the gravel on the shoulder shoulder of the road. And from his waist up, he's lying on a paved pavement that's kind of wet because it's been raining. And his head is lying on his arm 
and he, the upper part of his body is on the pavement, and he sees this light around him as he comes. So he's too. face down on the he's road. He's face down on a wet on road, road on the on side of road on the <laughs> side of a of a highway. Wow. Yeah, and he doesn't understand where he is, and he sees a light around him. He thinks he's under a street lamp. Mm-hmm. So he looks up to see the street lamp, and it's not a lamp. It's the UFO that oh, he wow. saw in the forest. Yeah. yeah and yeah. all of a sudden this light zips up into the bottom, the bottom of the craft closed up and the craft takes off at lightning speed. And he sees this and he thinks it's the same night. He remembers wow. getting knocked out by this craft. Yeah. And then he sees the craft disappear. He vaguely has some memory at that point of what waking up on board the craft and seeing these different beings and trying to communicate with them and, you know, he, mm-hmm. so he has some memories there, but he just he sees that there's some lights ahead of him down the road and he decides to walk downhill because he's pretty weak. Yeah. And he walks downhill, finds a phone booth and, and makes a collect call. He realizes where he is. He's in the town of Heber, which is the last town before they would drive this switchback 45 minute dirt road trail to get up to where they were logging in the forest. So, so this is the beings, first town past where they picked him up, where you have the picked closest him up. town. Yeah, it's the closest town to where the craft yeah. picked him up. So if these beings, you know, returned him back up into the forest where they had taken him from, he right. would have froze to death before mm-hmm. he could have gotten help because there's no way he could have walked down to the town of Heber. 45 minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's 45 a 45 minute in drive a in a truck. Yeah. So it's like, you know, a four hour walk, you know, if he was yeah. walking it at night and it switched back and it's hard and it's, it's like, there's gullies. It's not a, it's not a smooth. So they path. already killed them once. They didn't want to kill them again. They didn't again. want to kill them <laughs> twice. So th- there's some intelligence there that shows there was an effort to bring him to a place where he could make a phone call and get help, mm-hmm. which is exactly what he did. He, he calls uh, his sister-in-law because he knows that she lives close. Well, he, he calls his sister and a brother-in-law, actually, because they live closer to mm-hmm. Heber. And he, he, he tells them, uh, you know, what's basically that he's been returned and that they need to come pick him up. And they thought it was a prank call. They were going to hang up on him. Yeah. He, he had to scream at them and say, please, please come help me. Yeah. And interestingly, an operator listened in on the call and knew it was Travis and the operator called the police to report him back. So the police actually knew that Travis had been returned before the family actually admitted that, yes, he had been returned and a family member had taken him down to a hospital. They were his, his older brother, Dwayne was trying to protect him because he saw the mayhem that started. Right. Right. In the days when they were looking for Travis. So mm-hmm. he began and a lot of the UFO groups who had been up there said, look, if Travis gets returned, like take off all his clothes, put him in a baggie, get a medical help, you know, don't let the government get a hold of him. Don't tell the police yeah. to protect them. He's going to be, you know, interrogated like you can't imagine. They're going to try to brainwash him and say this never happened. I mean, all these warnings oh, were coming to the family. <laughs> Thank God right? he didn't know about this. He wouldn't have come back. Well, when <laughs> Travis's brother-in-law and his brother, Dwayne, both came to pick him up at the phone booth because his older brother, Dwayne, had come up from Phoenix where he lived and been part of the search for five days. Mm-hmm. Dwayne, you know, and Travis were trying to communicate and Travis was thinking it was the same night. 
and and was very you know concerned and Dwayne said to him Travis you've been missing for five days feel your face you've got a five-day growth of beard and Travis was just in shock that he'd been gone five days I mean how could this be he so there was a big disconnect going on there because Travis thought it was the same night and of course Dwayne then tried to protect him Right. And not really tell the police where he was taking him and what he was doing, because he was afraid that they would try to the police or the government may try to do something that would harm Travis even more than these beings had. Right. right. <laughs> and uh, the and next, it, took, it took a nosy operator, huh? <laughs> yeah, a nosy operator, I yeah. think, whose son had been in school with Travis. And I think she knew mm-hmm. she recognized Travis's voice. And she wow. knew she knew yeah. the phone booth where it was coming from. You know, she could see that on her switchboard. So yeah. she called Marlon Gillespie and said, you better send somebody up there to, you know, try to get Prince. I think he's back. But they, they made it there after Travis got picked up. So Travis mm-hmm. wasn't there and it had been snowing slightly that night. So and it was very damp and they, they couldn't pick up, uh, you know, any type of fingerprints. But they very much suspected he was back. And finally, Dwayne, uh, you know, answered Marlon Gillespie's call the next day and said, yes, he's back and I do have him and he's down here in Phoenix with me. And Marlon drove all the way down to Phoenix, which is three hours from from the Snowflake area. Right. To get him out of there. Well, to to interview him and to say, yeah. you know, what what happened to you? Where have you been? And, you know why didn't you come forward as soon as you came back? And, you know, both Dwayne and Travis were trying to figure out what had happened to Travis. I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. it was a mayhem still after he came back. But they brought him to a hospital. They did. Uh, His brother actually brought him to a couple of different places. Basically the first medical place they brought him, the guy was not equipped. The doctor was more of a psychologist and he really wasn't equipped to mm-hmm. do blood samples and things like that. So then they ended up getting, uh, seeing another doctor and getting, you know, a blood test and, uh, you know, a urine sample and get him evaluated to whether or not, you know, to prove he wasn't taking drugs and this wasn't an hallucination right. and to find out what was physically wrong with him. He, he was deeply dehydrated. He'd lost about 10 pounds. That's surprising, isn't it? That's surprising that part that they didn't hydrate him up and, well, you know, they, they actually may have. He did have a puncture wound on the underside of his arm and no one oh, quite did. knew what that was. And you yeah. think that he would have gone into ketosis without any kind of water or hydration. He could have died. Just he could have died. No That's water right. will kill you. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. So maybe they were actually hydrating him mm-hmm. because he didn't show signs of ketosis, which you may have if you didn't have water actually right. for five days. So, uh, but Travis does not remember drinking any water and he certainly wasn't given any food or anything like that during the time he was on board the craft. And to lose 10 pounds in five days, that's quite a lot. Right. That's right. That's right. And he's a thin guy. He is. He was then and he still is. Yeah. So that's a big weight loss. Right. Right. Yeah. So then was there anything unusual in his blood? Like, you know, that showed he was now an alien or anything? No, 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 no. Uh, There there was not. And there was also no sign of drug use. Mm -hmm. And one of his major detractors and a major debunker named Philip Class, who uh, followed Travis's story for practically 40 years and tried to completely debunk it. Well, 38 years because he he uh, 
Philip Glass died in 2008. And he he immediately got on it and tried to debunk oh, it. Oh, yes. He was like he a major immediately skeptic. Tried to yeah. It. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, this uh, event garnered such national attention that all the national talk shows were after Travis to come on, like mm-hmm. things like Face the Nation and Face the State and things right. like that. I mean, major. Uh, programs at the time. And in fact, Walter Cronkite was one of the first people to break the story on, I think, ABC News, something like that. So it was out there in the major press and it was uh-huh. drawing national attention, which is yeah. why the debunking efforts had to start uh, pretty quickly. Um, but and- what did he base it on? Just this really can happen. So he has to lie. Of course. But we've got polygraph tests. Of course. Oh, well, yeah. According to Philip Glass, all the boys colluded and all lied on their polygraph test. They all got together and agreed to lie and that they were going to make money on this. Mm. Um, And yet, in fact, the opposite was true. They didn't get paid. They didn't go back and finish this logging job. They lost money. Yeah, they lost money. The (laughs) logging crew guy lost money. And Mm -hmm. then what what Philip Glass tried to say is Mike Rogers was using this as a way to get out of a contract so he wouldn't yeah. be fined, which he was anyway. He had to pay a fine for not finishing the contract. He eventually finished it and got paid later, but he didn't get paid as much as he would have. So he was fined basically right. for it. Um, and it was clear that at the more of stories Philip Class tried to come up with, he didn't know what he was talking about. Right. You know, he didn't understand how the the Forestry Service awards contracts to loggers to clear underbrush. It was a program called Timber Stand Improvement, and they would take out what they considered to be fuel for a fire that could break out from a lightning strike. This is one of the areas where there's very high lightning strikes throughout. Uh, the year. And of course, when they happen in the summer and everything is super dry and the winds are high, you can have major fires that can burn thousands and thousands of acres that can start from a lightning strike. So the more you reduce that ability to have flame, you know, flammable materials in in the forest floor, the better your uh, ability to preserve that timber Mm -hmm. is. So that's timber stand improvement is, you know, the name of the contract they were hired under. So they weren't actually logging big trees. They were doing underbrush clearing, creating these logging piles that would then be burned in the winter. And when there's snow on the ground, right. When it's, they would go by and then when they go go by, put, you know, it it would have to be dry enough to get them to ignite. So they'd pour gasoline Mm -hmm. on them, that they would be controlled fires that they would use to burn the, 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 these piles or the underbrush, even at times, as long as it was controlled and it wasn't windy and it was wet and it was winter, you know, right. they could do these type of controlled burns. So why the need though of a skeptic? Why does the skeptic need to debunk something that is so obviously um, not debunkable? <laughs> is uh, that a word? <laughs> yeah. That's a very good question. Many people have often thought by looking at Philip Class's files and his archives, which I have done, they're located at the Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, the American Philosophical Society. In fact, Stanton Friedman, myself, and Kathy Martin went there and spent about uh, four or five days reading Class's files and other people's files like Donald Menzel and Edward Condon. So they were all skeptics. Well, 
Yes, they they were, but some of them weren't openly out there as skeptics. Certainly mm-hmm. Donald Menzel, who was the head of the astronomy department at Harvard, didn't put himself out there as a skeptic, and, um, but he put himself out there as a, as a scientific, reasoned, trained academic who is going to tell us why it's impossible for right. life somewhere else so to have ever go existed. In, he didn't go in neutral. Uh, well, it's believed and understood that Philip Class was getting directives from Donald Benzel, who was the head oh. of the National Security Agency at the time, and no one knew it. So he was wow. part of a clandestine group. So all the people that Class corresponded with, vacationed with, was directed by, and was awarded positions on certain educational panels at certain universities, Philip Class was, you know, considered a uh, a knowledgeable person because he was a writer for Aviation Week, uh, Aviation Science and Weekly. It was a periodical that came out of uh, Washington, D.C. And he was considered to be knowledgeable on certain things related to aviation and science. And he was fed information from these other people about how and why to debunk this topic and why to cast doubt. And all a debunker needs to do is make is sound intelligent and make people question whether or not something can be real. They don't even have to disprove it, which Philip never did. He never disproved the whole Travis Walton story or the Betty and Barney Hill story or uh, the Pascagoula story. He went after many different people who had incredible experiences. And all he really did is what we call cast a blanket of doubt. And once Mm -hmm. he's done that, he's achieved his mission mostly. But he did it for 38 years, didn't he? (laughs) Yes. Now they're staying So who was paying him? (laughs) That's what I want to say. That's what I want to ask. When you look at the types of contacts that he had, say, Mm -hmm. uh, when there was a famous Hollywood film made about the Travis Walton story called Fire in the Sky. And when Paramount was launching this, they commissioned various news outlets like Larry King Live to host Mike Rogers and Travis Walton on the show. And as Mm -hmm. soon as Philip found out about this and found out about the movie coming out, he was all on top of it. Now, how do you call up Larry King Live and get on his show like that? Yeah, that's true. He had incredible contacts. So he was well connected in, I wasn't going to say the intelligence community in Mm -hmm. order to get those types of positions. Right. You know, in right. order to get on those new shows. So they just didn't want anybody to know about UFOs. It and here was, was a credible story that, yes. you know, was all over the news and now on everybody's TV. Debunking yeah. the subject was major intelligence operations for a good 38 years. And then, you know, it sort of petered out when when Philip Class died and there were still major debunkers. I think you could look at maybe even someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson and question whether or not he's not a paid debunker. Now, who is even, that? Who uh, is- N- Neil deGrasse Tyson um, is a, uh, a, a science. He actually, I think he has a program on discovery and it's called, you know, um, outer space or the universe, understanding the universe. He puts himself out there as a major speaker, kind of like Carl Sagan did Mm -hmm. about, you know, what's the nature of space and, uh, you know, what do we know about dark matter? And, 
And oh, okay. he's an academic, and he's also very skeptical about the potential that intelligent life could have ever interacted with us here or travel here. And mm. whenever he's asked those questions, he, he laughs and is rather condescending in his comments, which just makes me think that, okay, well, maybe he's the new paid person like uh, a Carl Sagan or, you know, right. Right. Uh, or maybe class. too. They, it's such a, a jolt to our reality, the fear they just can't have it. Well, what's interesting, Barb, is if you go in, say, even to uh, American history archives, there was a very famous panel put together called the Robertson Panel after the Roswell events that took place and the mm-hmm. massive amount of newspaper coverage that that received. There was a panel of people put together that were supposed to investigate the UFO phenomenon. And then they were supposed to report to Congress. And that was called the Robertson Report. When you go in and read that, which you can, any one of your listeners can just Google and find the report online today. If you go through and read it, it's about a 35, 40 page document. You can Mm -hmm. clearly see that the recommendations the Robertson panel made is that since we cannot identify what these craft are, where they're coming from, how they fly, what their propulsion systems are like, what we need to do is just debunk it, right, <laughs> uh, discredit right. it. Yeah. And we're going to do that by engaging Hollywood to do crazy films about little green men and make right. anyone who thinks they're real seem stupid and unintelligent. And they could have had little, little gray men, (laughs) but rather little green men. Right, right. So there has been a deliberate protocol to keep the subject under wraps for decades. In fact, J. Allen Hynek, who was in charge of and he was the head of astronomy at Northwestern University, and he was given the job to head up the Blue Book project, which was Mm -hmm. the government's, you know, supposedly, you know, a serious investigation of UFO phenomenon. And that was in the fifties, wasn't it? Or was it before that? Yeah. It started in, um, I think it started, uh, around 1953, 54, I think Heineck was put in charge of it in maybe 55. And it went to about 1969 when they closed the, 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 the blue book files. Um, And they did this because the government did not want to have to report back to the public what they were finding. They just Mm -hmm. decided they were going to make it a non-issue topic. And the Condon report is what was used at the University of Arizona. I mean, University of Denver, Edward Condon, was literally told he was directed actually by a memo called the trick memo where he was told just, you know, write a complicated report, but put the issue to bed. And, you know, your, your report is going to let people know that there's nothing they need to worry about, about the UFO phenomenon. It's not real. In fact, they wouldn't even let pilots report UFOs, commercial pilots or military pilots. If they reported an encounter, they were sent on furlough. They were given psychological evaluations, told they weren't fit to fly. In fact, this came out in the news in 2019. You know, in in 2017, we have 
Luis Elizondo coming forward from the Pentagon and disclosing two major aircraft carriers that had encounters with UFOs, which were very similar, one from 2004 and one from 2015, the Nimitz and the Roosevelt. One was off the coast of Florida and one was off the coast of California. So he came forward and reported this. And of course, the news ran right to the pilots because the news wanted to interview those pilots. Sure. And the first news broadcast of those pilots, they're all in blackout and their voices are, are, are concealed because the Navy had not yet given them permission to talk about it. Even though the Pentagon releases the footage that they, yeah. that they captured on their gun camera footage, they're still not allowed to talk about it. So in 2019, suddenly the Navy comes forward and says, okay, this happened around May 19th or 20th in 2019, where finally the Navy said, oh, I guess we better give these guys permission to talk about it because they already, already have, put it out. They yeah. already have. Yeah. And we've, you know, <laughs> yeah. One hand doesn't always know what yeah. the other one is doing. But why now though? I can't get that because there's a lot of activity, but there've been so many times. I mean, Phoenix Lights with Dr. Lynn Kitai, you know, I mean, there's right, right. so much out there. Why now are they starting to say, well, yeah, this is real. And we're, we're going to start to let you see what we see or what we know. You know, That's I just can't just figure that-, that out. Barb, that is the $65,000 question. Right. And if right. I knew that, I'd tell you. <laughs> right. I'd no love to hear it too. No one why. No one's clued yeah. me in. I know. I there's no guess. logic that you can I get. can just guess. But so what do you think? It. I think that there are different groups within our government that stumble and come across this material through the nature of their work. And they feel that it should not be kept secret and other people uh, feel that it should. And mm-hmm. so there's this tug and pull, you know, pro and con approach to the subject. And there's always been that. But the, the thing is, is that other governments around the world, certainly Russia and China and you mm-hmm. know, Korea and Mexico and Brazil and Canada, right. they all have all these same issues too to deal with. And they've had and reported very similar incidences like we have. So I think as the world becomes more able to communicate with one another, I mean, you can go on and watch a podcast that's being conducted in Brazil or Russia Mm -hmm. or China or Japan these days, right? So as more people in the world can communicate directly with one another, the the evidence of the phenomenon is going to come forward. And the sooner I think we come together and be more willing to discuss it openly, the better. And I think the United States didn't necessarily want to be shown up by other countries, which have revealed more than yeah, more, more than, sure. Yeah. China was very open about the fact that they had five major airports shut down with because UFO crafts were hovering over them. This was all, I think, in 2017. I wish they'd come in now. I wish they'd come back to our world now and kind of hover around. Well, but you know what, though? I really I want the answer to this and I want all this information, but we're going to go off very soon. Okay. And I want to make sure that people know where to get hold of you and what you have coming up and, you know, all of that. Right. Because right. this is, you know, we can go on forever. I know. So we, we could. And hopefully I'll come back and we'll. we'll I would we'll love to and talk about crop more. circles and all yep. of it. Yeah. There's lots to talk about. So people can find me and learn more about the film at the website, TravisWaltonTheMovie.com. 
There's lots of information there also about current debunking that's going on. There's lots of videos mm -hmm. up there and articles and other radio interviews, which I'll archive this one there too for you. If Good. Like. Oh, that'd be great. If people are interested in seeing Travis Walton or learning more about him, they can go to TravisWalton.com. Um, he's also mm -hmm. going to uh, make public appearances. He, he does periodically. Sometimes they're listed on his website, but if people live in the Phoenix area, there's an annual Phoenix Lights event you were mentioning earlier with Linda right. Tai. This happens every year around the anniversary of those Phoenix Lights. So that was March 13th, 1977. So every year- No, about 1997, wasn't it? I'm sorry, didn't I say 19? Yeah, no, you said 77, 97. <laughs> it's 25 years this I'm year. I'm thinking Travis's yeah. story is 75. Yeah. So I have 70s <laughs> on my mind. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, that's 1997 is when the event happened. So every year around the end of March, she has a big screening of her documentary called The Phoenix Lights. And mm -hmm. Travis is often at it because he's also an Arizona resident. So he shows up. Right. So he'll be there this year. Uh, he'll probably be selling some of the documentaries I made there and oh, uh, that's great. speaking as well. So people can see him there. And uh, those are probably the two best ways to find yeah. me. And then we've got the MUFON um, Symposium in Denver. And you're That's going right. to be somewhere else, though. Uh, no, you're, I'll, you're I'll, I'll be, be there. I'm not speaking. I'm not speaking. Yeah. I'm not a speaker, but I will be there. Uh, I will show up. But you were telling me you're going to be speaking. I'm also speaking at the Lilydale uh, Institution, which is in northern yeah. New York, um, and that will be in the middle of August. And I think uh, Labor Day weekend, I'll probably be in Exeter, New Hampshire. There's a wonderful wow. conference that happens yeah. up there, and I think I'll be speaking there. I just found out about today. So, Oh, fabulous. Yeah. Well, Jen, thanks so much for being here. I've really enjoyed it. I want you to come back because we've got more, I'm sure. Thanks yeah. for hosting me. It'd I'm, be it's great. It's really an honor, Barb. I'm really, and thank you for doing what you're doing, opening thank up you. people's thinking into yeah. the deeper levels of reality. It's this so is important. all new to me too. So I want everybody to come with me. So it's great. And you can get hold of me at aviewthroughtheveil.com or email me aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. So thanks so much. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.